Bismillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Ve sallallahu ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless this gathering and to reward all of those who are in attendance. Um, we are uh, here in the contemporary readings, Sunday night. And as we mentioned, we're going to continue this topic until the, basically the end of the year. We'll probably have this week and next week. After that, it seems likely we'll be on end of the year break, but we'll see how things develop in that regard. So this week we're covering a reading called, um, first of all, let me send you in the chat box this link um, and then I'll share this so this is called towards a grand renewal towards a grand renewal the salient features of the Azhari approach by Sheikh Usama Sayyid Mahmoud al-Azhari um, you know I don't know how to say this, but politics sometimes affects how we feel about different people's writings or contributions. And um, I think just uh, some of that definitely happened in Egypt uh, with the revolution and then the coup and the days afterwards. Um, so sometimes have a little bit kind of like discomfort with certain people even though they have great scholarly works um, and so we just kind of bear with that a little bit uh, Sheikh Usama is very well known in Egypt he's uh, and internationally he's a scholar of hadith in particular very strong and other areas as well and um, he he put together this little paper um, he put together this little paper so um, let me pull up the so we're gonna start here I, I, I feel that um, it's really good and it's really important and that there are things to be learned about the method of the scholars of Al-Azhar um, in general and uh, what that is largely because Al-Azhar uh, despite various efforts um, to discredit it is still the center of learning of Sunni Islam and it has been for centuries upon centuries that doesn't mean there aren't other places of course there are other places and there are great institutions of learning and great people of knowledge and so on and so forth but the particular contribution of Al-Azhar cannot be discredited or ignored. And um, of course, whenever you have, I mean, it should be, of course, I don't know if it is, but whenever you have an institution that has such a central role in the overall understanding of the Ummah and the approach of the people of knowledge to how to deal with text and so on and so forth, then there's going to be something to be learned there. And uh, it will probably reflect a broader approach 
to how to deal with the Quran and the Sunnah um, uh, that has been adopted by Muslim scholars throughout history. So, uh, so let's see what he says. Let's just see what he says. We don't have to go too much into it. Scroll down a little bit. This is not as long as it seems, just so you know. It's, this document is Arabic and English, so it's actually about half the length of it. We may finish today, we'll see. So towards قَالُ الْمُؤَلِّفُ حَفِظَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى وَلَفَنَ اللَّهُ يَاهُ بِعُلُومِي فِي الدَّارِينَ أَمِينَ uh, all praise be to Allah, Lord and Cherisher of the world And peace and salutations be upon our Master Muhammad Who has been uniquely endowed with the highest of eloquent aphorisms Reservoirs of wisdom, the supreme leader of the first generations And the last generations Seal of the prophets and the messengers God's mercy unto the world Allahumma amin O God, bestow your peace, salutations and blessings upon Him, his family, his companions and those who follow them In righteousness until the day of reckoning Amin so basically he gives you an intro and then I believe it's 10 components, 10 features, okay? So um, numerous are the schools and institutions that have risen to carry the trust amana of our religion, deen, schools and institutions for which God has decreed acceptance and approval and which people have favorably endorsed and to such an extent that these schools and institutions have served and imparted the religion for centuries. These schools and institutions became the eyes through which the Ummah of Muhammad viewed events and methods, and through which it formulated a methodology and issued its view of what is to be accepted and rejected. And in the forefront of these schools and institutions was the illustrious Al-Jami' Al-Azhar, Al-Azhar University, which has supplied the Muslim Ummah throughout the ages with great religious leaders and scholars, and during its illustrious history, has recorded in its name many noble Positions. It has emitted the lights of knowledge, realization, and guidance to the entire Ummah in the East and the West. What is the Azhari methodology? From where did it originate? And what is it composed of? After having researched extensively the generations of its alumni, scholars, books, its impact on the people over the centuries, and other critical evidence, we are able to articulate some conclusions about the essential features of the Azhari approach. These features are akin to the spirit that inheres in the scholarly activities of its ulama, their works and scholarly positions. We will abstract and explain these speech features here so it becomes easy for students of the religious sciences to commit them to memory and in order that they may serve as a criterion whereby they are able to differentiate between sound and unsound approaches. Uh, I have a comment here, but I'm going to delay it. Impacting on these features, we must note, are issues such as grounding in the tradition, deductions, examples, models, methods of application for which this present work is insufficient to cover in its details, but each may form the basis for more extensive research and publication in the future. However, we discover that these very elements are common, widespread, and current in the curricula of the great learning centers like the University of Zaytuna in Tunis, the Ottoman School in Tripoli, the Uthman Basha Madrasa, the University of Qarawiyin in Fas, the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, Fatih University in Istanbul, the great learning centers in Hadramaut, Sana'a, India, Mauritania, as well as the secondary schools and institutions that have developed from these primary ones. So here he's noting that these are, you know, old standing schools, uh, places where generations and generations of, of ulama were known to have been. 
and uh, and to have functioned and you have kind of like this living tradition um, inherited by those scholars. Uh, the aim here is to recollect and bring to mind these principles, for they are the criteria of knowledge which we hope will serve as a sort of metin, basic text, which students of knowledge can memorize and hence improve their understanding of knowledge and thus proceed therein on the basis of insight and keen mental perception. So the thing that I want to note here is that, and it relates to what I said in the beginning, is that um, the, p the positions of a particular individual should not deter us from benefiting from an overall approach. And what I mean by that is to say that oftentimes when people will detract from Al-Azhar, for example, they'll say, well, Dar al-Ifta in Egypt took this position, or Sheikh Al-Azhar said this, or Mufti of Egypt said this, and look at these people, they're just doing this and that and whatever, and so on and so forth. And... Um, Regardless of the particular analysis of the particular position or person or whatever it might be uh, It's important for us to note that even if Even if the person takes a really problematic position That doesn't negate the entire institution uh, We're talking about one person for example or two people or three people or four people in an institution that has hundreds if not thousands currently, let alone throughout the generations of people of knowledge. So, um, you know, the approach is still the approach. And that's why, in general, we, we always like to talk about methodology more than we talk about the particular people, right? Because the issue is the approach, um, is the method. And what method are we going to follow in understanding our religion? Rather than to say, like, you know this particular person even when we talk about the medhabs we we specifically talk about the medhabs because of the influence of those people right like i mean uh, it's not it's not about the particular person as much as it's about the approach of the school and understanding the approach of the school the person doesn't matter but uh you know especially in this case look at the overall issue so he's going to men mention these uh, these points. We're going to just read them one by one and comment on them, inshallah. First feature. First feature. The first component is for one to have a continuous and unbroken senad chain with respect to transmission, cognitive understanding, and spiritual purification. So this is ittisal al-senad, riwayatan wa dirayatan wa tazkiyatan. That in the realm of the transmission of knowledge, the understanding of knowledge, and the spiritual rectification or purification, all of them that the person has a continuous and unbroken chain going back to the Prophet Amongst the special features of the Azhari approach is that its sciences and knowledge disciplines are passed down and transmitted from generation to generation, and which constitute a continuous and unbroken chain of religious scholars and practitioners. Every generation receives from the previous, uh, from the generation preceding it, a continuous chain and uninterrupted understanding. None of the students who follow this approach will venture to take up leading positions, except after receiving knowledge and keeping long company with scholars until they grant him permission or a formal license in teaching, especially hadith narrations, uh, transmitting, especially hadith narrations, teaching, writing, and imparting knowledge. 
Should you inquire from one of them as to his teachers, he will mention a number of them. And should you ask him how long he has spent in the company of his teacher or teachers, he will say that he has spent a long time in their company until he understood and comprehended from them the methodology of understanding and the entries to knowledge. This is contrary to other approaches which are broken and interrupted and in which a student will take a leading position without keeping company with the scholars. And should you ask one of them how much time did he spend in the company of his teacher, he will tell you that he had only met him once or that he has only spent a limited number of hours with him. How is it possible for him to have obtained knowledge and how can his understanding be trusted? So this is the first point. First point is that the person takes knowledge from the people of knowledge after having spent time in their company and in research and questioning and thinking and debating and conversing um, and continuous back and forth so that they can develop a true acumen for their learning and so that their understanding can be grounded in the understanding of generations that have come before. N things don't always have to be new. Uh, usually in religion we don't really want things to be new we want things to be close to the revelation to the example of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam certainly there will be new issues that come up and we will build upon the best of the old to answer the new which will come later as one of the points uh, but the first feature here is to intentionally seek that you know like i want to learn from the people of my time and that's one thing that you'll see when you read kind of like the biographies of the scholars of Al-Azhar and you'll always see they're kind of like and they took from these people and these people took from these people and it's always like these are like the 5, 10, 15, 20 most well-known ulama of that time scholars of that time and that's where they got their knowledge from of course they don't have to agree with them on every single issue but they learn the foundations from them they learn the methodologies from them. They learn the application from them. They see what it looks like. They see how they deal with the people. Um, and all of that then builds into how they do things. And they seek that in the riwaya, which is the uh, actual, trans just, the, just the transmission of the learning, of the hadith, of the statements, whatever it might be. And the second area is in the cognitive understanding. He trans It's translated as... The cognitive understanding meaning their uh, how they interpret it how they interpret it so again you know not just interpreting out of nowhere to just make up things as we go um, but rather to to take that from previous generations and then also in spiritual refinement to do that as well so in all of the major areas of Islam basically the person is trying to take from those who came before them and they're doing that through the process of continuous company to keep long company with the people uh, of knowledge and to really soak in what they're doing and a lot of this you know it's it's hard to explain because it much of it comes by way i mean there's the outward knowledge and the things you have to learn and stuff but putting it in the right place comes from uh it's almost like osmosis you know it comes from being in the company of these people um, and that's why that was so heavily emphasized in all learning situations throughout Muslim history. It's very similar actually to kind of like an apprenticeship model. That, you know, you go to, your, to the master 
and you spend time with them and you work and you do things and they ask you questions and you ask them questions and so on and so forth but through that ongoing interaction uh, a person then takes the path to realizing their own mastery uh, but that path has conditions and, and it doesn't just happen overnight so this is number one second feature the second component is giving due care and importance to obtaining a mastery of the auxiliary sciences. Um, so sometimes I'm going to have to go to the translation to make sure that I'm understanding this right to the Arabic. So give me a second to do that really quickly. Okay, good. That's what I thought. Okay, so this is Ulum al-Ala. So the second feature is the auxiliary sciences, and these, by by what what he means by that, are a set of disciplines in Islamic studies that are understood to be the tools. They are the tools for learning, the tools for understanding, and they're usually kind of like the more painful ones to learn. Uh, I may have mentioned this recently, but one of the things that, for example, one of our teachers uh, used to mention to encourage the students would be, he would say, when you're here in Egypt, you learn these things, ulum al-ala. Focus on the ulum al-ala and fatigue yourself in doing that because those are the, that's what you build upon later. And that's what you'll apply to the other areas of study. But So if you, if you get those, you can build for the rest of your life. But if you miss those, then you'll never become kind of like stand on your own feet as a person of learning. So what is this? What does it mean here? The furthermore, it is an approach that is concerned with the education and training of its students on the basis of mastering and developing a firm grasp of the auxiliary sciences such as nahu syntax, sarf morphology, uh, ishtiqaq etymology and derivation, balagha rhetoric and eloquence in its three parts. Uh, Al-Bayan wal Ma'ani wal Bidir and Usul uh, Fiqh, principles of Islamic legal theory, and Ulum al Hadith, sciences of Hadith, as well as other auxiliary sciences and disciplines that assist the learner, develop in him the relevant capacities, and enable him to engage in the understanding of the Quran and the prophetic tradition, the Sunnah, on the basis of knowledge, understanding, and keen insight while at the same time proceeding in the learning of all these sciences and disciplines on an approved methodology through which the student is able to rise from preliminaries to finer and subtle details. It, has, as it is as if the first feature, spending a lengthy portion of time in the company of religious scholars, is that from which the second feature stems, since holding extended company with the ulama will enhance the learning of the sciences. So again, what this is referring to are the tools the Arabic language primarily and the methods of dealing with the fiqh and the methods of dealing with the hadith as well as other things like logic and the etiquettes of uh, research and debate and disagreement and stuff like that these things will all aid the student in building their own personal acumen their intellectual acumen that will help them in engaging with the religious sciences this is a very long process and it's not easy again it's very painful some people think when you go 
and you study you know it's like all roses and flowers and stuff oh, I mean it's not easy to study Arabic for 10 hours a day for nine months like that's that's not how especially you know we usually think about our Islam like you go to the khutbah you get inspired you listen to a little khatira do some community work it all feels really good but to sit down and like bang your head on the wall with grammar and words and vocabulary and memorization for 10 hours a day for 8 or 9 or 10 or 12 months whatever it might be uh, is is not quite so easy uh, yeah <laughs> So what should we say of Muslim scholars who, uh, quote-unquote, who opine about Islam and tradition but do not have mastery of Arabic grammar? They're not a scholar. I mean, this is the problem with the whole thing. It's, it's all convoluted. And, um, you know, I've, sa I've said it over and over again. I tell people I'm not a scholar. And they say, well, no, you are. You're just being modest. I'm just being, no, I'm not, actually. And the reason why I say that is not to be humble. The reason why I say that is because we have to know things as they are. Um, and, you know, we go out there and we call everyone a scholar because, like, academics, you know, they're a scholar of Islam, really, you know, in like a Western academic secular perspective of things. But they're really just not. I mean, you'll talk to people who, you know, they, they, they are posited as, as scholars and they haven't even studied like basic text in the Arabic language. That's a huge problem. Um, Imam al-Shatibi radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he used to say that the, basically the strength of the scholar is related directly to their strength in the Arabic language. And if, if their Arabic is stronger, then their scholarship will be stronger, their understanding of the Sharia and so on. And if not, then it will suffer. Imam al-Shafi'i radiallahu anhu was a hujjah in the Arabic language. He was a, he was a proof in the Arabic language. Like if a Shafi'i said it was valid, it's valid. It counts as an evidence in the, in uh, in in language. Imam Ahmed was a scholar of the language. Of course, all of them were. Um, so it's very very important. Um, it's very tedious, you know. Uh, that's uh, you know. That's that's the thing that's hard to. Um, hard to do One of the things I appreciate about Al-Azhar Is that it still has a heavy emphasis on that You also see it with the Syrian scholars The Syrian scholars often have a very heavy emphasis On the Arabic language And they're very strong um, But you'll see this Like when the Shiuch and, and Azhar are teaching There will always be an emphasis on the Arabic And the rules And like reading Applying them as you read through the text And so on Um and the other thing here that's mentioned here is that that will enable them then to have a correct understanding of the Qur'an and the Sunnah because that's the goal, right? These tools give us the capacity to engage with the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Then uh, that will give them the ability to do that. And that in their doings, in, the, in their learning of those things, they should do it with an approved methodology. So they do it with a methodology that is established and these methodologies are roughly established I mean uh, anyone who's who's traveled the the path of seeking knowledge knows that these things are relatively set you know like when you're studying the Arabic language you're probably going to start with an Ajurumiya for Nahu then you're probably going to read like Qatr al-Nada of Ibn Hisham and then after that you're probably going to do Al-Fiyat ibn Malik and then after that you know do whatever you're going to do that's for specialists 
um, if you're if you're doing uh, fiqh Hanafi for example you're probably going to do Nur al-Idah and then you're going to do Quduri and then you're going to do Mukhtar with Ikhtiyar and then you're going to do Hidayah the other madhabs they have their progressions as well um, if you're doing Hadith you're probably going to do Bayquniya first and then after that you're going to do Maybe like Nuzhat al-Nadar and then after that you're probably going to do, I don't know, like Tadrib al-Rawi or something. And the point is like there's fir- there's beginning and middle and advanced levels for each of the topics. In Aqidah you're going to do the Kharida of Dardir radiallahu ta'ala anhu. You're going to do the Johara and then after that you're going to go further to Sharh uh, al-Nasafiya or whatever it might be after that, whatever your thing is point is these progressions are there you don't just skip what happens when you just skip is that you end up not as strong um, it could be that the person so they could say say for example there's like the 100 page text and then there's a 300 page text and there's the 500 page text and pretty much everything that's in the f- 100 page text is going to be covered in the 500 page text so the person will say well why can't I just go to the, I'm gonna go straight to the 500 and do the 500 okay you could you're not going to be as strong. It's just that's all there is to it. When you do the 100 with the commentary, you do the 300 with the commentary, you get to the 500, you're going to understand the 500. The important things are going to be deeply embedded now because they will have repeated themselves multiple times. Um, and, and then when you come out of the, the third stage, you're going to be much stronger. So this was the approach that was generally used. Third feature. The third feature is having a thorough understanding of the higher objectives and purposes of the Sharia. One of the outcomes of keeping prolonged company with the ulama and obtaining knowledge of the auxiliary sciences is the opening up of and the development of a keen insight into the understanding of the higher objectives and purposes of the noble Sharia and the understanding that the religion came to realize the following objectives. Worshipping God, spiritual purification and growth, proper habitation of the earth, guiding nations, inheriting knowledge from the prophets, building the human being on godliness, spiritual insight, turning towards the final abode, obtaining honorable character traits, building civilization, producing spiritual revival, until the Ummah of Muhammad is itself a mercy unto the worlds, just as the Prophet Muhammad is a mercy unto the worlds. So basically when you study these things and you're with the people of knowledge, Eventually, these kind of higher objectives start to bubble up because they're repeating themselves. You're getting a better taste of them, an understanding of them. And that comes with um, the exposure. And again, the hierarchy of what matters more and what matters less begins to develop. When a portion of the understanding of the Sharia's higher objectives and purposes is made available to and placed within the reach of the student, his understanding of the religion is thereby broadened and enhanced, and his insight into Islamic legal matters is thereby illumined. Such training will enable him to avoid narrowness and harshness, teach those who lack knowledge or are erroneous with gentleness, and shape his character and personality according to the noble prophetic model. Other modern approaches often do not demonstrate any knowledge of and acquaintance with the higher objectives and purposes of the Sharia. There is no mention of higher objectives and purposes in their discourse, nor is it manifest in their understanding and application. So this is, again, uh, we want to be very thorough 
and detailed in the way that we deal with the Islamic sciences and the realms of knowledge and learning. And at the same time, we want to do that while not missing the forest for the trees. So we want to really study that tree and make sure we understand the tree and understand the tree next to it and how they interact with each other and their relationship and so on and so forth, while at the same time keeping in mind the vision of the forest. So then you don't make these kind of blunders and mistakes that we make sometimes where we just lose sight of what really matters. Uh, but but the, the objectives of the Sharia, they uh, offer some level of protection from doing that. It's not necessarily that the person won't make mistakes or whatever, but there's some level of protection in that method. Fourth feature, the fourth feature is the correct appropriation of the Holy Qur'an, i.e. using Qur'anic verses in their appropriate and proper context. So, you know, subhanAllah, you see a people, um, and again, you know, as a non-Arab uh, foreign student, your... Um, kind of like some of the requirements are loosened. So the requirement, for example, on the Qur'an is loosened. Uh, for Egyptians, they memorize the entirety of the Qur'an early, and part of their high school graduation is to have done that. And then in the university, they review a quarter of the Qur'an every single year and are tested cumulatively on it at the end of each year, uh, or at the end of the, um, you know, seven and a half, then 15, then 22 and a half, then 30 at the end of the year end of the f four years uh, so for a person to know the Quran that well and to have memorized it that early they it leads to a deeper relationship with the Quran that will appear as things go and then the important thing there is to be able to do istishhad to bring the verses from the Quran and to use them appropriately um, sometimes we use things not exactly in the way that they were intended or uh, whatever else it might be so when he says in the commentary of this is one very important effect that results from prolonged company with the ulama knowledge of the auxiliary sciences and understanding of the higher objectives and purposes of the sharia is that the proponent and practitioner of this approach becomes grounded in the reading of the quran and is able to use and apply quranic verses in their proper and appropriate context he does not go to a verse that was revealed concerning unbelievers and then apply it to believers nor a verse that was revealed concerning unbelievers and then apply it to unbelievers. Likewise, he does not take a verse that has been revealed concerning a general issue and then apply it to a specific issue, nor a verse that has been revealed concerning a specific issue and then apply it to a general issue, and so on and so forth. Rather, he ensures that he has a sound understanding of the Qur'an and is able to properly apply the Qur'an to particular context without ambiguity or confusion, unlike many other methodologies in current fashion which delve into the Qur'an without the most basic of understandings and which often lead to distorted interpretations. So I think that one kind of stands on its own, that the idea here is that <coughs> and it's a consequence of what comes before it. Right? If the tools are in place and the company of the people of knowledge is there, and a person's taking their time and their approach, then what should come from that is that they're able to engage with the Qur'an in a way that's appropriate and correct. Um, and the same will apply to the hadith. Fifth feature, 
The fifth feature is critical importance of the affair of the Ummah of Muhammad This one's very important. One of the outcomes of all that has been explained before is that the student of knowledge realizes how great the affair of the Ummah of Muhammad is and that it is the repository of Islam and that it is an Ummah of knowledge, guidance, mercy, and heirs of the prophetic heritage. He also realizes that it is an Ummah of conveying God's message, that it has been entrusted with the noble Sharia, that it has a role to play among other nations, and that their role is to guide and convey the wisdom of the Sharia to people, that it is incumbent to participate and contribute to the production of the global culture and civilization in a way that is beneficial, effective, and sophisticated. This is so that it can thereby direct others to God by way of its sciences, arts, and crafts, values, and reservoir of knowledge in the various fields of the human, empirical, and rational sciences. So here you have this emphasis on uh, oh it's only 8 not 10 sorry I had said it was 10 but it's 8 you have an emphasis on the ummah emphasis on the ummah the emphasis on the ummah is extremely important you know again the forest and the trees that one can sometimes become so interested in learning and knowledge that they give up on the ummah and the affairs of the ummah and the concerns of the ummah and the needs of the ummah and loving the people and caring for the people and one of the things that you know i would i i loved about some of the scholars of an azhar that you would see that really you feel like they're the ones carrying the banner of this approach there are people who are very shabby very shabby and i don't mean that in a negative way uh, it's a hard word to translate to english but it means basically they were with the people Shab means people, shabby, they're associated with the people. So they're not like you they're they're extremely sophisticated in their learning and at the same time when they talk to the people they know how to talk to the people. And they know the language to use with the people and they know the level to speak to them at and the way to speak to them and how to engage with them and they're not too big for them, they're not too important for them. They sit on the curve with them, they they eat food with them, they visit places with them, they laugh and joke with them, you know. So they're part of the life of the people. And this is, again, really, really important. Uh, we want scholarship to be with the people and to really understand the needs of the people and where they're at, things that are going on with them, and so on. So this is the fifth feature. Sixth feature is carrying the concern of general guidance, i.e. the guidance of all. Uh, when the student has thoroughly acquainted himself with the above, his attention will be turned to the fact that addressing the world concerning the beautiful and excellent aspects of the noble sharia is amongst the strongest of obligations, and that the prophetic methodology was filled to the maximum with the concern for guiding the entire creation and conveying the radiant lights of guidance to each and every human being. At the same time, this is accompanied by complete eagerness, tenderness, and compassion for all of God's creation. Of the most significant features of the Azhari approach is that it cultivates the sublime meaning in the hearts of its students. This sublime meaning in the hearts of its students, unlike other approaches which do not have in their discourse any reference to the rights that other nations have over us. So a concern for calling people to Islam. And uh, I think it's related to the one before it. That when you're with the people and you understand the people, you're able to call them to Islam. And also moving beyond just the Muslims to understand that there is a a, um, a place for the Ummah of the Prophet in the world 
and that there's an important role for the Ummah of the Prophet ﷺ in the world and uh, conveying guidance to the world and what people can benefit from having Islam in their lives and how important that is. Okay, so that's number six. Number seven. Um, is a little bit longer. So I'm going to read through it. The seventh feature concerns the wholeness of the elements of knowledge. Wholeness of the elements of knowledge. Uh, I want to review quickly how he had said that in Arabic. Um, المكونات الكاملة للعلم المكونات الكاملة للعلم okay I guess that's pretty much what it is let's read it then uh, the seventh feature concerns the wholeness of the elements of knowledge the Azhari approach maintained throughout the ages as it engaged in the education of its students that knowledge is composed of three elements. The first is sources and proofs in the form of the Qur'an, Sunnah, scholarly consensus, and analogical reasoning. I covered this, if you recall, in the Intro to Islamic Law class. Uh, the second is the approved and rigorous method of understanding the religious texts, the manner of analyzing them and extrapolating their meaning and significance, and third is qualifications, attributes, competencies, skills, and intellectual endowments, which must be present in the person becoming knowledgeable, learned, and grounded in the Islamic religious sciences. The sources alone do not constitute knowledge nor guidance unless it is accompanied by an approved and agreed upon method of interpretation and carried out by a competent and qualified individual. So this is that all of these things go together. Uh, it's not only about the evidence uh, it's also about its interpretation and it's also about whether or not the one who's engaging in the interpretation has the necessary skills to um, be able to understand what matters and what doesn't matter it's like sometimes you know when you're teaching the uh, as you all know I teach in a school and um, one of the things that happens sometimes is maybe we'll be talking about something or I'll assign something to them and they'll be like, why does this, do, what do we have to do this? This doesn't matter, this doesn't mean anything. They start complaining, you know, students, they like to complain. So, uh, but then what you find is that sometimes they come after and be like, oh, I understand now, I see why it matters. Right? Because when they initially had an opinion, they were ha <coughs> they're unqualified to have an opinion in the first place. <laughs> you don't really know enough to, to have an opinion in the first place. Um, so these are three components he's talking about here. One is the evidence, how to use the evidence, and who can use the evidence. Other approaches tend to tear knowledge apart and reduce it to fragments. Proponents of these methodologies do not understand what knowledge is, but for the word denil, evidence, they demonstrate no knowledge of wajah dalala the angle of signification, that is to say, how the delil signifies what it signifies and how it makes the particular point that it makes, nor of the method of compiling the disparate proofs on an issue. So the first is that they don't understand that um, 
it's not just about the evidence but what does the evidence indicate so it's sure you have the hadith but what does the hadith tell you that's that's another layer right um you have the verse but what is the verse telling you what's the actual thing that you can take from the verse and what can you not take uh conclusively then uh, compiling the disparate proofs on an issue to make sure that all of the evidences and proofs are being brought together not just one uh, and the method of integrating, interpreting, and analyzing them while taking into consideration the state or condition of the person engaged in the interpretive process and making sure that his intellectual capacities, skills, and competencies are all suited for the task at hand. So making sure that each angle is being, this is the wholeness of the knowledge, that all of the different angles are being brought together and they're being done with uh, appropriate competency. Also, among the fullness of the elements of knowledge is that its bearer must be conversant with and combine within himself both the transmissional sciences, i.e. sciences that are primarily based on transmission and narration, and rational sciences, i.e. sciences that are primarily based on reason, such that he is able to interact with, understand, and comprehend epistemological models of which the current state of global knowledge is composed, and he is thereby in a position to convey the salient and characteristic, characteristic, characteristic features of our religion to the world at large. So on top of what's mentioned about within the Islamic sciences, but also to take this a step further, say that the person who's going to deal with the world, they have to have a broad type of learning and know how to incorporate these different areas like they learn some philosophy they learn some sociology they learn some politics they learn some history they're able to incorporate all of these different areas of learning uh, into their approach to the islamic sciences and dealing with the issues of their time so you see how kind of like these points kind of build upon each other Uh, the question that's being asked uh, by peace, are you referring to this particular point or the overall reading? Uh, yeah, the overall reading. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to come back to it after we finish this eighth feature. Eighth feature. The eighth feature is deriving benefit from the tradition of the Ummah, opening oneself up to it, maintaining contact with it, and building on it. Among the most salient features of the Azhari way is that it is an approach that embraces the tradition of the Ummah with respect to the sciences and its fields, and interacts and engages with that tradition. It is an approach that acknowledges this tradition's authentic nature and value, and knows how to extrapolate and extract from it everything that is beneficial, meritorious, and sublime. It also knows how to build on this tradition and how to add to it, contrary to other approaches that seek to abandon the tradition of the Muslim Ummah and several relations with it. So basically, the approach is not ahistorical. Um, it acknowledges that which came before. It recognizes that not all of it is correct. Not all of it is sound, not all of it is applicable to our particular circumstances and time and place. And yet, we do not want to abandon it. So, uh, it appreciates what came before, but recognizes that each generation has their responsibility to build upon that. 
and to contribute to that ongoing layering of knowledge and uh, and to become part of that tradition in a sense <coughs> Um, I'm going to read this conclusion and then come back to the question that came. These then are eight essential features corresponding with the number of doors of paradise with the hope that God Most High will open therewith doors of understanding, knowledge, and insight. See the extent to which the heart is filled with spaciousness and kindness when these components are brought together and the extent to which the intellect partakes with the methods of guidance and paths of godliness if it is defined by these components and characterized by these qualities. An important salient feature has been added to these components, one that is composed of a number of elements, namely, that God Most High has uniquely endowed the illustrious Al-Azhar with centrality in the sense that it is centrally located between the Muslim East and West and North and South. This meant that many delegations of the Muslim world from both the East and West have passed through it with one very important result, the expansion of the circle of knowledge therein for the great and highly learned scholars from the East and West have sat in Al-Azhar for the purpose of imparting their valuable knowledge. In this way, the me teaching methodologies at Al-Azhar became more uh, refined and its horizons expanded. This resulted in a very important outcome, embracing and accommodating the other. Since students from all over the Muslim world set out to the Azhar, as is well known, but also non-Muslim students journeyed to Al-Azhar, and whom the scholars of Al-Azhar embraced, embraced and accommodated, imparting to them knowledge. This resulted in a very important outcome, that is, in Al-Azhar's capacity to monitor developments taking place in the worlds of people, events, ideas, and things. In this way, Al-Azhar was more perceptive of reality in the real world and more conversant with the change that occurs in the domain in which Islamic legal rulings apply and which results in their particular legal ruling changing in its wake. One important outcome that occurred from this is juristic choice or discretion through which the scholars of Al-Azhar would highlight the detailed manner in which the Sharia expands to accommodate the states and conditions of all its adherents upon whom the Sharia is binding. All of this requires detailed exposition and illustration. So the point mainly is that it had a central it has a central geographic location that makes it so that many people will pass through it from different places and that contributes to the breadth of the learning, but it also contributes to kind of like the spirit of uh, dealing with others and recognizing the other and so on. In a similar fashion, the integration of these components leads to profound universal and general objectives and purposes, which in reality is the goal of goals, namely that these components enter their practitioners into the prophetic fountain until the practitioners of this approach gradually nears the noble Muhammadan prophetic approach with respect to inheriting the prophetic way, character molding, love, latitude, godliness, understanding from Allah, and eagerness for guidance that accompanies all of God's creation. May God bestow his peace and salutations upon our leader Muhammad, his family, and his companions. Summarizing the features of the Azhari approach, to read them again. The first feature is for him to have a continuous and unbroken senad chain with respect to narration and transmission, cognitive understanding, and spiritual purification. The second is giving care and importance to obtaining mastery of the auxiliary sciences. The third is acquaintance with and having a comprehensive understanding of the higher objectives and purposes of the Sharia. The fourth is a correct appropriation of the Holy Qur'an, i.e. using Qur'anic verses in their appropriate and proper context. 
The fifth is the critical importance of the affair of the Ummah of Muhammad The sixth is carrying the concern of general guidance, guidance for all. The seventh concerns the wholeness of the elements of knowledge. And the eighth is deriving benefit from the tradition of the Ummah, opening oneself up to it, maintaining contact with it, and building on it. هذا وصل اللهم وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. Okay, so there's a question. It says, this piece appears to have been written for the scholarly class or for those pursuing those ranks. What can quote unquote lay Muslims take from this piece? So that's a good question. Um, I think that you know when it comes to our religion and especially for kind of like the people who attend the majlis um, you know people who attend the majlis are generally like pretty committed to learning and um, because you know as you guys know we're not really very entertaining around here um, we try to go through things and we try to do things that are beneficial and meaningful hoping that that will build um, those who are attending. So that's number one. I mean, I don't think... If I was giving, like, a Friday night program and a masjid, I probably wouldn't choose it, you know. But for the people who come to these gatherings, I think that it's still good. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, uh, as as people who care for our religion we inevitably engage with um, the various kind of like interpretations, approaches, flavors of religious leaders and teachers. And I think it's important to have an understanding for like, that goes a little bit deeper, like, okay, what kind of approach was standard? And it's kind of like, how do I say? It's kind of like when people first come into Islam, oftentimes I'll tell them to read the seerah. And part of why I want them to read the seerah is to understand the life of the Prophet of course. But it's also kind of like a sort of inoculation. Um, the seerah, you learn things from reading it and understanding it that can serve as kind of like preventative protection from various kinds of interpretations or perspectives or approaches or whatever it might be. Uh, and I think that these points also give us a framework for like what should we expect from someone that we're learning religion from. Um, it, it's not necessarily that we ourselves will have them, but we want the people that we're learning to learning from to at least have some sort of connection with this. Um, or some sort of appreciation of these ideas and these concepts as having been, again, the way of the people of knowledge generation upon generation upon generation is that these things are part of the way that they learn. Um, uh, the other thing is that some of the points can just give us a, a reminder of... Um, how we too can take a certain path you know i think that someone who's kind of like a serious muslim and wants to learn and stuff like that they might not learn and uh you know five-year program a six-year program a seven-year program 
but over the course of 20 years they can be really strong and yeah that sounds like a long time but if you start when you're 20 years old and you learn properly with an approach and a methodology and certain things in mind and you have the framework right uh, a person when they're like 40 years old they should be you know pretty pretty conversant and uh, and being able to understand the tradition engage with the tradition and do kind of like what's mentioned here in the bottom uh, opening upon maintaining contact and building upon what was there and becoming part of that legacy those are just some reflections along Adam um, I'm open to others if other people have perspectives on that um, and of course any other questions or comments or um, uh, reflections that you have are welcome I myself I like to go back to this document every so often and um, I realized like in the I didn't come across this until after I came back from Egypt um, uh, when I did come across it I realized like okay yeah I can see this this is true even if it wasn't explicitly stated this was very much like part of the approach that we learned um, and so to see it afterwards is nice for me I like to again go back to it every so often and kind of recalibrate and uh, recommit myself to these broader principles. May Allah give us tawfiq, inshallah. There's a question that says, yeah, <laughs> it's a good question, as always, mashallah, you guys' questions are always good. Um, how do we instill the importance of the higher objectives of the Sharia? Far too often we focus on the minutia. Yes. Uh, Really, the challenge is to do both. You know, the minutia without the higher objectives can be misinterpreted, can be dealt with incorrectly, so on and so forth. The higher objectives without the minutia can also be misinterpreted and misappropriated and stuff too. Um, so we want both. Uh, how can we do it? You know, I think that, again, the seerah is useful in that regard. If you look at what he says here in terms of... <coughs> he mentions the following objectives. Worshipping God, spiritual purification and growth, proper habitation, habitation of the earth, guiding nations, inheriting knowledge from the prophets, building the human being on godliness, spiritual insight, turning towards the final abode, obtaining honorable character traits, building civilization, producing spiritual revival until the ummah of the Prophet is itself a mercy to the worlds. I mean, I think that sentence is worth repeating to oneself, like, you know, get a little notebook, write this sentence down, read it every day for two weeks, read it every day for two weeks and kind of like be fresh. Um, 
yeah Doesn't one need a sense of vision and purpose to have the higher aims in mind? That's one thing I take from this here. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that... And, and that's why the lived tradition is so important. You know, when you read the seerah, you see the Prophet them doing all of the small things while keeping the bigger picture in mind. You just see that. You see that clear as day. That that's the way that the Prophet them did things. And sometimes when you're dealing with the Muslims, when you're dealing in communities, so on and so forth, uh, you don't always have that example. But ideally, Allah forgive us, ideally good teachers, they do that. They broaden our vision. You know, they get us to focus on those things that really matter. They help us to not get caught up in the things that don't. And um, that can be hard, you know. It's not. It's not easy. I mean, we we and we fall into ruts and we fall into these um, patterns and habits and whatever else. But we have to keep these things forefront. It's about guiding people. It's about bringing people to Allah. I mean, look at the way the Prophet them forgave people. Look at the way that he brought people together. Look at the way that he opened the doors up for guidance for them. Uh, in spite of the horrible things that they oftentimes did to him and did to his people, them. His first goal was always Hidayah. His first goal is always Hidayah. It's always to be able to guide the people and to open the doors of guidance for the people. And... Um, you know, most other things, they don't really, like we have to have this kind of prioritization in our heads that maybe it's not time for that right now, you know. Allah help us to think properly, to keep things straight, you know. Um, yeah, that's all I've got. All I've got. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has any questions or. Oh, it's also uh, looks like Sheikh Fuad is here. If you have anything you would like to contribute, Ahmed Salman, Sharif Bikum. says they sent me an email okay uh, okay um, anyone who wants phone appointments uh, the way to do that is on the website so if you go to the us, there's a link for booking appointments with myself or with Sheikh Muslima or Sheikh Fuad or Chaplain Sundus. Uh, all have times that were available during the week. And um, you can book appointments there. 
uh, for whatever it is that you might need, inshallah. That is general. Or uh, whatever it is you you don't need, by the way, also. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that you have some major pressing issue or whatever. Um, you know, you could just book appointment to check in. Be like, you know, we haven't talked in a long time, whatever. It doesn't have to be a big problem or something. Um, so those are there. I'm, I'm Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, in the afternoon. Sheikh al-Muslimah's Mondays in the morning. Uh, morning, midday. And Chaplain Sundus. I can't remember exactly. I said Fuad is on Wednesdays. So you can see the different availabilities in Chaplain. Okay. Barakallahu fikum. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wal asr inna l'insana la fi khusr. Illa alladhina amanu wa amanu salihat. Wa ta'asubu al-haqi wa ta'asubu al-sabr. Barakallahu fikum. Don't worry about the bookshelves. I know you're worried. You're like, why are they so empty? They're all sitting there. There's nothing in them. Don't worry, their time will come, inshallah. Um, there's books from my parents' house that haven't seen the light of day in many years. And inshallah, inshallah, soon we're going to liberate them and give them a home. <laughs> and, and reconnect with them. and uh, Introduce ourselves all over again, inshallah. So make dua that I can successfully acquire uh, these long-lost orphaned books uh, in the midst of all this lockdown in Southern California. May Allah keep everyone safe and everyone's families safe.